0: Good morning. It's good to be with you. As Shelby said, it's not quite what we want it to be yet, but we're moving in the right direction, I'm, and I'm glad to to be here with you and, and with my family. I want to reflect for a bit with you on what is often called the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, which is a, a celebration of who Christ is and what he has done. And I think for us as Christians, one of the reasons we gather each week on the first day of the week to celebrate this communion, to pray together, to read scripture together, is to reorient ourselves to Christ as the one who is the source of our life and the goal of our life. That in him we find our beginning and our end. In him we find what it, what it means to move and have our being in God and to be what we're meant to be. He reorients us week after week after week as we look to his life, look to the story of his life. And this hymn, I think, reveals the heart of the heart of the gospel for us. It, It cuts right to the quick of what it means for God to be in the flesh and what it means for us to be people of God, filled up with the life of God for the sake of the world. So let's look together at the Christ hymn, Philippians 2. This hymn comes in the context of Paul's encouragement to the Philippians about the way they should live. And it's, it's crucial that we remember this letter was written from prison. Now, Paul is in prison multiple times in his life, and this is, this is easy for us to dismiss, but it's worth remembering that Paul lives the kind of life that often ends, up, ends him up in prison and ultimately ends up with him being executed by the state by the Roman authorities. And whatever we mean by Christianity, if it doesn't have that edge to it, if it's lost that edge, then we've lost something essential. We've lost something necessary. If we don't understand why it is that Paul, and not only Paul, but many of the apostles, and of course Jesus himself, as we're about to see, their lives lead them into places of trouble. And ultimately, their lives are taken from them as they remain faithful to God and the people God has entrusted to them. So this letter written from prison, Paul says to the Philippians, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, We've all of us grown up in and around churches and communities where these terms are, are common, references to, to encouragement and consolation and love and joy and unity. But I think it's crucial to remember that those, those words are meant to have heft. They're meant to carry weight. They're meant specifically to carry the weight of the cross, the weight of the life of Jesus. So Paul is is instructing, again, from prison, he's instructing these Philippian Christians, and he's directing them back to the heart of the heart of all of this. What really matters when when we come down to the essence of it? What's at the heart of it all? It's encouragement, it's consolation, it's love, it's sharing in the Spirit, it's unity, it's compassion, it's sympathy. It's our lives being filled up with love for one another and those around us the same love that has been poured out on us in Christ from God. And then he instructs them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. And this marks what I'm going to talk about today throughout the sermon, this fundamental deferentiality that should be the sign of Christian love. That to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be filled up with the spirit of Jesus, is to prefer others, to defer to the good of others. From compassion, from sympathy, to prefer the grace of God in the life of others, the life of of those around us. And so he says you can do nothing from selfish ambition. You cannot act from a place of self-concern. You have to act from a place of concern for others. You can't act from conceit, but you must act in humility. Notice in the psalm that we prayed today, the last line of the psalm is that God teaches the humble his ways, and the humble know the truth. Right? That there is no way to follow this Jesus without sharing in his humility. That humility is not ideal, it's necessary. That without humility, we cannot know the first thing, about following Jesus. Like the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, I've kept all of the law from my youth up. What is the last thing I need to do to fulfill the calling on my life? And Jesus says, no, you're not at the last step. You've yet to take the first step. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then you can begin to follow me. Because this man, obviously, is haughty. He's lifted up. He's exalted in his own righteousness. And so long as we carry that, that sense of self-righteousness in us, we've yet to take the first step in obedience to Jesus. Without this humility, we can't know anything about the way of God. We can't know anything about the way God purposes for us. Let us look not to our own business, and you should not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You've got to concern yourself with others. Why? Because the same mind in you is the mind of Jesus Christ. The mind that you share, the consciousness that shapes your life, is the consciousness of Jesus. And then we get to Christ him. So Paul's instruction is your lives have to be marked by compassion and sympathy. You have to find consolation in preferring others, in deferring to others. And you will do that as your lives are shaped by the life of Christ, as your consciousness takes the shape and direction of his consciousness. And then we sing the hymn, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He's in the form of God, he has equality with God, but he doesn't exploit it. But instead empties himself, taking the form of a slave, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is, this is the hymn, the hymn that sings Christ's humility and his humiliation. And that because of his humility and his willingness to be humiliated in the cross, God has exalted him and all of us bow in awe before it. And then Paul returns to directing the Philippians. He comes back to tell them how they should live. Therefore, because of this hymn, because of this Christ, we are hymning. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, the God we've just sang about. God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the first, I think, the first thing we have to say is that the incarnation is not a humiliation for God. The incarnation taking on flesh is not a humiliation for God. We often sketch it in that way, don't we? We often sketch it as if the the move from being God to being human is a move in which God is humiliated and yet is willing to be humiliated for us. But in truth, what we confess as Christians is not that God moves from being God to being human. God doesn't cease to be God for a while and live a human life but that the move is God takes up the human life into his own life so that Jesus does not cease to be God, but as God lives our life with us and for us. So God becomes human, not in the sense that he ceases to be God, I'll say more about this in a moment, but in the sense that he takes up our human humanity and in the process reveals that our humanity is fitting for the life of God. The crucial point to realize here is that God is not humiliated by identification with us. God is not humiliated by sharing our humanity. Just the opposite. God reveals that our humanity is becoming in in both senses of that word. Our humanity is becoming in the sense that our humanity is being changed into his likeness. That over time, we are becoming more and more like the one who made us. We share his image. We're coming to share his likeness. Over time, he is making us into the fullness of who we are meant to be. But also in the sense that we are beautiful. We are fitting. Humanity is a fitting reality for God's life. Humanity is becoming for God. And God becoming human is not humiliating. There's nothing shameful about being human. And the goal is not to become less human as we are being made into the image of God, but to become more fully human, To realize all the potentials that God has sown into us as human beings. That, as St. Irenaeus will say, the glory of God is a human being, fully alive, contemplating the face of God. That to be human is what pleases God. Paul tells the Corinthians in another letter that he had written before this one, that Jesus died for our glory. Jesus was crucified for our glory because our glory is God's glory. God has taken up our life and revealed that our life is beautiful, our life is good. To be human is something God celebrates. He does, however, in the incarnation, reveal that his character is humble. So it's not a humiliation for God to be human, but living a human life, God reveals that God's life is humble. I've gotten a lot of pushback over the years, of course, for a lot of things I've said, but I've probably, on the whole, received more pushback for this claim than any other claim I've ever made. And that is that God is humble. God is humble. And I think it's shocking to us because we imagine God as the master in a master-slave relationship that we have often, if not always, heard the Christian life characterized in such a way that God is the one with all the power. We are the ones who are weak and at his mercy. And therefore, we should join ourselves to him in obedience so that his power works for our good and not against us. He's the master. We're the slaves. He's the one with the power. We're the ones who are at his mercy. And we are at his mercy, but we're not Intimidated by his power, he gives us his power. God is humble and deferential. God prefers us. God gives up his own life for us. This is exactly what Paul tells the Romans, Romans chapter 8. He says, God gave up his own son for us so that with him he might give us all things. And as you've heard me say many times, This reveals that God would rather not be God at all than be God without us. God defers to us. God prefers us. That's what the gospel is claiming. That's what this hymn is celebrating. That God becomes human, reveals that to be human is beautiful and becoming, and reveals that God is humble. Just just yesterday, a friend shared with me a, a, a new book that's come out by a man named Frederick Bauerschmidt. And it's on the love of God and the way of God. And Bowersmith in that book opens up with this reflection that I think is absolutely critical. He, he's a, he teaches theology. My kids, by the way, on the way to church today, I mentioned someone who was a professor, and they said, oh, what's he a professor of? I said, oh, theology, and they all booed. So <laughs> not everyone is impressed with being a professor of theology. I'm not a real doctor, right? But. <laughs> Emery did not. Yes, thank you, son. I appreciate it. But but Bauer Schmidt, who's a professor of theology, gets asked questions as I do a lot about Jesus and the Christian life. And he said that one of the questions he's gotten many times is why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And we know that this is a common question and we can find this in the ancient world as well, where people who are encountering the Christian faith hear the story of Jesus, they see that the cross is our basic symbol, they hear it at our Eucharistic services, and so they ask, well, why did Jesus have to die? And Bauer says, which what I think is the old wisdom in the Christian church, it is, the question is not, why did Jesus have to die? The question is, why, when God lives among us, does his life look like this? And why did we kill him for it? Because if you frame the question the first way, it sounds like God is the one who wants Jesus' death. But what God wants is Jesus' life, not Jesus' death. We took Jesus' life. And the question is, why does God want this kind of life, the life that Jesus lives, a life of hiddenness and intentional smallness, a life of deference and preferring others, a life of intercession and compassion, a life that's put on the line for the sake of those who are most vulnerable? Why does God want that kind of life? And why do we not want that kind of life? Herbert McCabe, who's one of my favorite theologians, you can all boo if you'd like, but one of my favorite theologians passed away a a few... (laughs) Thank you, thank you, son. I do have one fan here, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. But Herbert McCabe said, if you do not live with love, you will die. If you do live lovingly, they will kill you for it. This is the paradox of what it means to be human. If you don't live lovingly, you shrivel up. If you don't live from love, you lose your own humanity. But if you do live with love, there's something about the way the world is structured. You suffer for it. This is the story of the martyrs. This is the story of the saints. This is the story of the prophets. Whenever there is someone, a man or a woman or a child who embodies love, they're met with resistance. And this is why Jesus said, you must love one another, love as I have loved you, John 17. The world will know you by your love. And we often quote that as a reference to attraction, right? That if we live lovingly together, people will be drawn to the love. But that's the opposite of what Jesus says. He says, you will be known by loving one another and the world will hate you for it. Because there's something about the embodiment of the life of Jesus, the embodiment of the love of God, the the embodiment of the humility of God, that the world's systems hate. So we, it's crucial that we understand that to be human is becoming for God, but to be human is also threatening for the world. It, it brings a sense of intimidation to the systems in which we live. And so it's, it's important then to realize what's happening in Jesus taking on flesh. Often when we make reference to this, this Christ hymn and we talk about the emptying, which of course most of you will have heard comes from the Greek kenosis, we often say that Jesus pours out his divine life so that he can live a human life. He, he empties himself of divinity so that his humanity becomes possible. And in that account, there's a kind of zero-sum relationship, a basic competition between being God and being human. And so we we offhandedly say things like, well, of course Jesus was perfect. He was God. Or, of course he won in the temptations against the devil. He is God, after all. Of course he remained faithful in Gethsemane. He's God, after all. And, And all of that thinking, however it takes place in our conversations, is driven by the idea that God is God and we are not. And there's this kind of unbridgeable gap between God and us. Which is true, except Christ has bridged that gap. He's the one who, as God, lives a fully human life. He's the one who, as a human being, lives the divine life. All at once, asleep in the boat, he is God asleep. Walking on the water, he is God walking on the water. And God, as this human being, walking on the water. Whether nursing at the breast of Mary, or weeping in Gethsemane, or dying on the cross, God is doing that humanly. This human being, Jesus, is doing it divinely. And so what's happened in Jesus Christ is that there has been a a wedding, an intermarriage, an intermingling of the divine and human, a, a matching up, an alignment of the divine and human, so that what's happening is not that he's ridding himself of his divinity in order to be human, but he's pouring his divinity into the human life. If you imagine two cups, one empty and one full of water, and I pour the one that's full of water into the one that had been empty. Either my emphasis is on the fact that this cup is now empty. He emptied himself and therefore is no longer what he was. Or I realize that God's life is infinite. There is no way for it to empty out. He can pour all of himself into you and there's still all of himself left. He can pour all of himself into me and there's still all of himself left. As Jesus empties himself, he's not becoming less of what he is. I'm becoming more like he is. So what's happening in the Incarnation is that God is filling up what it means to be a creature with what it is to be the Creator. He's filling up our lives with His life. And so we must be marked by that. And this is why Paul tells the Philippians, work out your own salvation because it is God in you working. We're able to work out our salvation because the life of God, the consciousness of Christ, the consolation of the Spirit is at work in us. The life of God in us is moving us toward the shape and the direction of the life we see in Jesus of Nazareth. We're coming to be like he is. And it's that that should awe us and overwhelm us. You notice in this, in this hymn, we're told that God has exalted him because he submitted even to humiliation. Becoming human wasn't humiliating. He reveals that God is humble, but being crucified was a humiliation. Submitting to death was a humiliation, and God is willing even to do that. And to reveal, therefore, that death and evil are at odds with the life of God. So God, who is humble, becomes human to reveal that humanity is becoming fitting, beautiful, and also submits to the humiliation of death in order to save us from it, trampling down death by death. And therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name above every name so that at this name of Jesus, Every knee should bow. And if we're not careful, what we imagine is the last judgment scenario where Jesus is revealed in all of his glory and everyone is scared out of their wits, right? That we fall to our knees out of sheer intimidation, much like Job before the whirlwind, where Job falls on his face and his faith because of of sheer undoneness in the presence of this God who's too much for him. But that's not at all what's being pictured in Philippians 2. What's being pictured is not that we are overcome by the overwhelming power of God, but that we are overcome by the humility and generosity and deference of God. On my wedding day, which was more than 20 years ago now, I was standing there at the front of that little church, and suddenly at the back door that woman shows up and my knees got weak. Not out of intimidation of what I was committing to, but out of awe at, I knew her, I've seen her, but I've never seen her like this. I knew she was beautiful. I knew this is what we wanted and what I wanted, but I, I wasn't ready for this. And my knees got weak. That's what it means to bow before Jesus. Not to bow before the one who threatens to harm you, but to be overcome by the beauty of the one who reveals that your life is the life he wants to give you, to share with you, to live with you. That your knees get weak in the presence of Jesus because you realize how good he is. This, This is a Christian commitment. Christians do not worship power. As incredible as power is, whatever power it is that made all things, whatever power it is that shaped the canyons and the mountains, whatever power it is that makes the volcanoes and the rivers, we don't worship power. We worship goodness and humility and kindness. We worship the God who is love We worship the God who is revealed in the life of this man from Nazareth, a life that is given entirely to feeding the hungry and healing the sick and delivering those who are oppressed by evil and speaking the truth to those who need to hear it and being present at a wedding to celebrate with those whose lives are beginning with joy. The one who gives his life in humility, that is what we bow before. And as our lives begin to take the shape of Christ, we begin to adore, not that God is all-powerful, but we begin to understand that the power God is, is the power of humility, the power of the weakness of loving your enemies rather than destroying them. The power of the cross, that's what we adore. Irenaeus again talks about the fact that Isaiah prophesies that the government Shall be on Christ's shoulders. And Irenaeus, Saint Irenaeus says, this is to reveal that the way of the cross is the governing force in the Christian life because the shoulders of Jesus are pressed against the wood to which he's nailed. The government that's on his shoulders the government of God, the kingdom of God comes in the shape of a life given to those who have no one to defend them, even if it means humiliation and death. And this brings me to the end and to the gospel. In the gospel reading today that that Father Paul read just before I came up, what seems like for some of you, I'm sure, 20 years ago, Jesus says the prostitute's and the tax collectors are gonna go into heaven before you. The sex workers and the politicians, the IRS agents are going into heaven before you. The bookies and the druggies on the street corner are going into heaven before you. I I love the offensiveness of that. Only God has the sense of humor and the humility to say that in a way that's liberating. What could he mean? Well, when we see the life of Jesus, and you remember that the life of Jesus reveals the life of God and reveals what it means to be human, you see that what Jesus is referring to is deference and preference. That what will bring us into the kingdom of God is the moment in which we say to those who are unworthy, you go first. What Jesus is saying is not they're going to go into the kingdom instead of you. He's giving you the secret about the only way into the kingdom. The only way into the kingdom is to prefer that others go into the kingdom ahead of you. The first will have to be last. The last will have to be first. The only way to enter this kingdom is to care more about someone else entering the kingdom than you or me ourselves entering. You have to say you go first. And what would happen in this community? What would happen in this city? What would happen in our world if Christians lived that way? That whatever the issue is at stake, whether it's political or cultural, whether it's economic or religious, whatever's at stake, what we live is a life of preferring our neighbors and loving our enemies to the point of saying, you go into the kingdom ahead of me because that is exactly what Christ does. He has equality with God, but he doesn't exploit it. He doesn't let his relationship with God become an ends for himself. But Jesus opens up his life with God so that there's room in his relationship with God for us. And every one of us who's filled up with the life of Jesus, that's where we're being taken. We're being taken to the place where, like Moses... When God says, I'm going to destroy all of these people and start over with you, what we say is, God, no. I would rather not be saved at all than be saved without these people. God would rather not be God at all than be God without us. And those of us who are filled up with the life of God are becoming the people, whether we want to or not, we're becoming the people. However long it takes, however hard it is, we're becoming the people who say to others, I would rather not be saved at all than be saved without you. We celebrate that the prostitutes and the tax collectors go in first because the only way to enter this kingdom is at the back of the line. Let us pray. God, I thank you for the glory of Jesus, the glory of a man who lives and dies in absolute deference to those around him who are in need. And God, I pray for us at Sanctuary, for all of us who are called by your name, that we will yield to that process. We will let you make us into the kind of people who celebrate the fact that we're not going first, who rejoice in the fact that we are at the back of the line, because that shows that we know the one who's even behind us, And urging us to go in ahead first. I pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.